Life rarely goes as we planned. Life rarely goes as we anticipated. You see, we all make plans, we all have dreams, but sometimes reality has a way of coming in. You know, we're told to dream big. We read tweets that say, you can do whatever you put your mind to. And we're rewarded when we plan and then achieve things. I like to plan. For those of you who I don't know yet, my name's Andy Babiak. I'm here on the preaching team at Daybreak. Been a part of this church for four and a half years now. Had a wife and three boys, fifth, seventh, and ninth grade. Teach over at Messiah College, and I see a lot of Messiah students. If you're a Messiah student here, let us acknowledge you. Thank you for coming. But I love to plan. I do. And I love to think about the future. I love to plan, how am I going to get there? But something I've learned, and probably something many of you have learned as well, is that reality is greater than us. The reality of other people's decisions, the chaos of the unexpected, the reality of our poor decisions, force us to deal with this reality. That reality is greater than our plans. And it's a heavy message for us this morning. How do we feel when we begin to see our dreams crumble and things are not going in the direction that we want? When life is failing up to, the, to live up to the expectations that we had, it can trigger when these things happen, an internal sense of fear, an internal sense of panic, of worry, of anxiety. Because you might have been under the impression that God promised you. God owed you. You've lived an honest life. You played by the rules. You behaved. You raised your kids right. Why isn't this cause and effect working for you? It looks like everyone else's dreams are coming true. Maybe your dreams are coming true for others. So what do we do? What do we do in those times when it feels like our dreams are out of reach? We're sitting in disappointment wondering where to turn. And it's really important for us to understand that when these seasons of life come, we can either walk away from God or we can come towards him. And that's the part of David's story that we're going to focus on this morning. Remember, a few weeks ago, we covered an earlier part of David's life when he was in his 20s. God had made David a very specific promise when he was a teenager. God promised that he would become king. So he had this plan, he had this idea of what it would look like for him to become king. But then what happens? Before he's king, crazy king Saul decides David needs to die. So he chases him all over the place, trying to hunt him down. And David's running for his life. He had to be confused. He thought he knew what was going on, but his world was completely upside down. And he did what many of us do when things aren't going the way we think they should. He panicked. And he made some poor decisions. And as a result of those decisions, many people died. But during that season of his life, David learned 
some really important decisions. Our focus on David this morning starts about 20 years later in his life. As he's facing a new reality, he is actually king now. And before, he went through these struggles because crazy King Saul made bad decisions. But part of David's life and the story that we're going to look at this morning, we're going to see that some of these things that David's going to work through, it's a result of his own poor decisions. And the lesson that he learns through these broken plans and difficult experiences is one that we should all pay attention to our own, for our own lives. For those moments when our life just feels like it's all messed up. You see, at this point in the story, David's in his 50s. And for us here in America, it feels like when you're in your 50s, you're in the prime of life. Or so I hear. I think Pastor Rick, you're what, nine months away from that? The prime time? But in ancient times, 50 was old. He had probably, David probably lost most of his teeth. He wasn't young. He wasn't handsome. If your sense of worth was ever tied up in, in being wanted and being appreciated, once you get to 50, you start feeling like you're almost in the way. And if you matter to anyone. So that's where David's at at this point in the story. Wars are still being fought. His army's still going out for war. But David's no longer able to still go with them. He sends the men off to battle. And this is when he makes a catastrophic decision. He gets up one night. In the middle of the night, looks around his kingdom, and he sees Uriah's wife bathing. Uriah was one of his friends, one of his companions, one of the commanders in the army. He was a hero, a good man. But David says, who is that woman? The servant says, her name's Bathsheba. He says, bring me her to me. Now, if you remember from the beginning of the series, God had warned Israel about having a king. He said, don't take a king. You don't really don't want a king, Israel. I want to be your king. Serve me. I'll serve as your king. And Israel kept saying, no, no, no. We want a human to serve as our king, like everyone else. And God's like, eh, there's a problem with that. Because humans have problems. You can say no to a judge. You can say no to a priest. You can say no to a prophet. But do you really want a king? You can't say no to a king. So Bathsheba can't say no to the king. The servants can't say no to the king. They bring Bathsheba before David. They spend a night together, maybe more than one. And then he sends her home. Shortly thereafter, Bathsheba sends a message to David. Um, David, I think I'm pregnant. David's like, I can take care of this. I'll come up with a plan. So he orders Uriah, Bathsheba's wife, to come in from the battlefield. He says, Uriah, what's going on in the battle? Give me an update. Uriah gives his report, and then David says, okay, now go home and rest up for tonight, and tomorrow you can go back out to battle. David wakes up, finds that Uriah never went home. 
He slept at the temple gates. You see, Uriah was a righteous man, so that plan did not work. So David comes up with plan number two for Uriah. The next day he gets, the next evening he gets Uriah drunk. And then he says, okay, Uriah, now go home. Be with your wife. The next morning, David gets up and guess what? Uriah still didn't go home. Because he's a good man and he didn't want to go home while his comrades were dying in the mud. So David comes up with a third plan to try to cover up his mistake. He writes a message to Joab, Uriah's commander, and he says, Dear Joab, please put Uriah up there on the front lines. And when the battle starts to get heavy, draw everyone back and leave Uriah there. It was essentially a death sentence. He gives this to Uriah. Uriah takes this sealed message and gives his death sentence to Joab. Joab reads this. But Joab has to do what the king says. So he does it. And Uriah dies in battle. Bathsheba mourns. Oh, but King David, what a nice guy. Brings in his friend's wife who's with child. Look at David caring for this young lad and taking in Bathsheba. There's only a few problems here, though. Servants were everywhere. Servants talk. And the kid kind of looks like David, too. You see, what's done in darkness will come to light. And so after David and Bathsheba are married, the prophet Nathan makes an appointment with David. So he comes before David, and it's an amazing scene. And, and the prophet Nathan comes before David, and he says, I want to tell you a story, David. There were these two men. One was a rich man who had tons of cattle, lots of property, and then there was a poor man. The poor man had a single lamb. He treated this lamb like his daughter. This lamb would even drink out of the same cup, and it was a part of his family. One day, the rich man had a traveler come to his house, and he needed to prepare a meal, but he didn't want to kill one of his own animals, so he went and stole the lamb from the poor man. David's furious. He's like, how could he do such a thing? Let me respond. This guy needs to be punished severely for doing this. What an evil man. And Nathan looks back at David, and he goes, David, you are that man. At this moment, David could have become defensive. In this moment, David could have denied that he was this man. But David, in this moment, is heartbroken. He mourns his sin, and Nathan says this to him in 2 Samuel 12, 11 through 13. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. David, you did that in secret, but I will do this in broad daylight before all Israel. So here's the problem. Here's the problem. I hope that 
we all listen to this, that every sin, it doesn't matter who you are or how religious you are, it comes prepackaged with a consequence. Every time we sin, we pay a price. And so that's why God's great desire for us is to give us principles to live by so that we don't have to pay that price. So the price of David's sins, the consequence of his sin, was that everybody in the kingdom will know about it. And that his children would follow in his footsteps and feel the weight of the hurt that he caused. Verse 13, David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. You catch that? The Lord was able to take away his sin. He wasn't going to die, but there were still some results of that sin that would affect David in his life. So in this moment, in this story, we're reminded that, that even though David was king, even though he was flawed, even though he was broken, he never confused himself with the true king. When he messed up, David always found his way back to God. And just as importantly, God never abandoned him. God always loved him, always forgave him, and gave him a way to rediscover that relationship with him. After all, David wanted what we all want. What David most wanted was a deeper relationship with God. So his repentant response leads us to a challenging question that we've got to ask in our own lives. For you and for me, when things don't go the way that we want, when things seem like they're messed up, what are we going to do? Are we going to take matters into our own hands? Or are we going to seek God? You see, the true issue with repentance isn't, am I sorry for my sins? It's, am I broken for the way that I've broken God's heart? You see, when David sinned, he hurt others. And when he broke God's heart, David was willing to welcome brokenness. Because sometimes it's our own decisions that lead us to brokenness. Other times, it's the harsh reality of life that leads us to brokenness. Or the poor decisions of others that cause our lives to go upside down. But make, make no mistake about it. There is beauty. There is great beauty in brokenness. Brokenness is a place of desperation when we are most open to God. For David, this was a time of grief, a time of guilt, and a time of him acknowledging his fault before his maker. And he, we find him confessing, I've sinned against the Lord in my desperation. I tried to fix it. I tried to fix my sin with my own plans, and I made it worse. God, I've messed up. Don't you find this true in your own life? In order to get well, we must first get real. In order to get well, we must first get real. You see, there's no substitute for spiritual honesty. If we're to find our way to God's healing presence. And it takes a lot of courage 
to be spiritually honest before God. So where does David run? Where does he turn to when he's been confronted by Nathan? He runs straight to God. And it's a big moment because it's when David starts to let go of his expectations. And it's a time in his life when David runs back to God. And Nathan tells David that God has mercy. God forgives you of your sin. But there's an unavoidable consequence for your actions. David, you killed a man. David, you're an adulterer. David, you raped a woman. And there's consequences for those poor decisions you've made. You tried to cover it up. You lied to everyone. And David chooses not to control it. He takes the first step towards dependency on God again. And and as we read and study the life of David, two years go by. David constantly seeks the Lord We don't see any result of his sin. Five years go by. David's still in that great relationship with God, seeking him, writing some of the psalms that we love to read, and we don't see any consequences of his sin. Ten years go by, and the consequences of David's sin start to take hold. His actions impacted his kids, and at the end of this story, David's life is a complete mess. Everything that he thought would happen as a 15-year-old boy, when he was told that he would be king, it's all gone up in smoke. This is not the life he had to have envisioned when he was 15 and thought he'd become king. This isn't how it's supposed to play out. And there's really two main tragedies in David's life that really mess up his plans. First, David's oldest son, Amnon. He was in line to become king. He became obsessed with his half-sister, Tamar. So one day he invites her to his home to come in to cook for him. 2 Samuel 13, 11 says, But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, Come to bed with me, my sister. Amnon's dreams weren't going his way. He wanted to be king. He he had a, a lust for his sister, so he decided to make his own plans. Tamar loves God. She wants to honor him. She resists Amnon. But Amnon continues to hold tight to his plan. Amnon rapes his sister. And after he rapes his sister, he's immediately filled with contempt for her. And she becomes a vile person to him. So she thro- he throws her out. The price of his sin was too heavy for him to bear. And in 2 Samuel 13, the biographers spared no details about what happened to David's family. When David finds out that his oldest son has raped his daughter, he's furious. Guess what he does? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. He's disappointed. This is not how he thought his family would be. Now we're only left to guess why did David do nothing? Why didn't he react to this? But in this season of life, when his life begins to turn back upside down, it becomes a theme for him as things start to fall apart. Maybe it's because David thought he lost his moral authority 
with some of his actions. He had asked God for forgiveness, but maybe he hadn't forgiven himself. Who is David to tell anyone how to manage their lives? And who is David to tell anyone especially how to manage their private lives after what he had done? So in his disappointment, maybe as he's suffering in the shame and he sees these things going on in his family, David does nothing. Then, David's son Absalom. He's like, my dad won't take in and care for my sister. I'm going to take her in. So he takes in Tamar. He wants to care for her and he makes a plan. He invites his brothers out for dinner. 2 Samuel 13, 28 tells us, Absalom ordered his men, listen, when Amnon is in high spirits from drinking wine, and I say to you, strike Amnon down, then kill him. Don't be afraid. Haven't I given you this order? Be strong and brave. Now get this. When David finds out that his oldest son has been murdered by his favorite son, Absalom. Guess what he does? Nothing. There's no record of him seeking God. There's no record of Absalom seeking God. And it seems like David is again stuck. His family's in upheaval. And there's a noted silence of everyone in his family seeking God, being honest with God. Have you ever been there? Overwhelmed by your shame, frozen by your painful past, overwhelmed by your sense of loss, your sense of grief, of, of what might ne not ever happen in your life. This isn't what you planned. This isn't how you thought your life would go. And you just aren't sure where you go from here. You feel stuck. You feel like you're isolated. You feel like you're alone. Sixteen years after David's mistake with Bathsheba, his world completely unraveled. David's firstborn rapes his sister. Then his firstborn son is murdered by his favorite son, Absalom. Then his favorite son, Absalom, he starts a civil war against David. So now you've got Absalom leading his army against David's army, and they're actually fighting, having a big war. And in the end... David's army wins. Absalom dies in battle. But it's the most hallowed victory of all human history. David wins the war, but he mourns. It wasn't supposed to be like this. My favorite son died. Why did he come up against me? You can't make this stuff up. Finally, in his brokenness, David finds his way back to God. It was a challenging period of David's life when his family went through all of these things. He calls out to God for help, and he runs back into the presence of his creator. You see, David is now 61 years old. And David's like, this has not turned out how I thought it would be. His dreams, his expectations of life slipped right through his fingers. And his family was 
literally dying before his own eyes. Now, if you recall, this isn't the first time David faced a situation like this. David once faced a giant against overwhelming odds. And Bathsheba wasn't the first time that David took matters into his own hands. But he learned something along the way through his life. David had learned how to depend on God when things were difficult. And now in one of the most tragic seasons of his life, David needs this important lesson now more than ever before. He needs to remember that when he faced the giant, when he was on the run for his life, or when he take, took his, his sin into his own hands and made terrible plans, and when life didn't go as expected, that God never abandoned him. You realize that God never left him? God never stopped loving David through all these seasons in his life. God was always nearby, waiting for David to come to him and to seek him. And David did that for a good part of his life. And so the chaos of life, the disappointment of life, it says nothing about God's presence or lack of activity. David, I think of all of the people in the Old Testament, if you were to ask anybody in the Old Testament, he would be the quickest to remind us that when we feel forsaken, we are mistaken. When circumstances don't go our way, when our dreams can't come true, when we're in the midst of a lot of pain, when we feel like God's not present, David would say, no, don't make that mistake of feeling that God's not present. David would say, life is bigger than you. Life is bigger than you. But God is bigger than life. And when life doesn't go our way, disappointment is an invitation for us to simply return back into our Father's arms and say, God, I need you. Things in this life are not going how I thought they would go. God, it, I'm broken. One of the great things about the life of David is we don't have to imagine his thoughts. We've got a window right into David's heart to understand what was going on since he wrote so many of the Psalms. In Psalm 27, he wrote when he was fleeing from, his, from King Saul, when he was on the run. Verse 5 and 13 and 14, it says, For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. I will remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and take heart and wait for the Lord. You see, he wrote this as he was fleeing for his life. And it's important to have this mental image. He talks about going to the shelter of his sacred tent. And as he goes to the shelter of God's sacred tent, that he places him high upon a rock. So in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the disappointment of life, David found his refuge in this tent to keep him safe on the foundation of the rock. And he says, that's where I go. That's where you've got to go. That's the only place that you should turn during these times of disappointment. You see, our circumstances do not define who God is. 
Our circumstances do not define who God is. But our confidence, our confidence in God and who God is can define how we respond to our circumstances. It's the confidence of knowing who God Almighty is that allows us to have confidence in Him even when our life becomes a complete mess and we're confused. Have you ever thought about the great irony of David's title? He's called the man after God's own heart. Why? Why have somebody you call a man after God's own heart who is a murderer, an adulterer, someone who raped others, made... Well, it's not for those reasons. David's called a man after God's own heart because he knew where to find his, his God. He knew the way to the sacred tent. And throughout life, when he made mistakes or when things weren't going right, David has a track record time and time again throughout life of going and finding that sacred tent up on the rock and saying, God, I need you. I can't do it. I'm disappointed. I'm broken. I've messed up. Help. What an example. I think about a, a family that I met a little over 15 years ago in North Carolina. A family that I've, I've watched and, and struggled with and through over the years. You see, the the mom of the family, she had had two children, and her husband left her. So then she remarried, and her, her new husband was in charge of the adult Sunday school program at the church, did a lot of things in the community, was considered a godly man. They had two more children together, and when the youngest son was in middle school, and the, the next son they had together was in high school, her daughter was in her early 20s. The daughter came forward and she said, you know what? My stepfather has been doing to me for years what David did to Bathsheba. The sin and the bad decisions of that father had a tremendous impact on his wife and on his kids and on the community. I was close to the, the, the young man who was in middle school at the time, and I remember spending a lot of time with him, and I would just try to meet with him and try to encourage him. And he'd say things like, oh, my dad, you know what they do to guys like him in jail? I hope they do it double to him. He deserves everything. He's this, he's that. I remember one day I was, I was trying to talk to him and he just ran off into the woods crying. And this was a big boy for a junior higher. He was as big as me. And he was picking up rocks and chucking them at me, saying, stop, leave me alone. Don't come here. I, I, I don't want to live anymore. There is no God. Stop coming near me. And he'd throw another rock. And I'd say, Johnny, I love you. Johnny, I love you. 
Let me cry with you. No, don't. You get closer and closer, I get there to him. And this young man was just completely broken. Remember, we have a choice of how to deal with our brokenness. 16 years later, Johnny is still completely broken, but still turning to the wrong things. Did he deserve to have his world literally turned upside down? What did this young kid do to deserve this? He's like, there's no God. God would never let this happen to me. So he's turned to everything of the world to try to cope, and he's still floundering around. May God direct him to his sacred tent. Interestingly enough, the sister, in her brokenness, went to the sacred tent of God. And she's got a remarkable story of restoration and healing, and, and through God's grace and mercy, she's got a healthy family life now with her own kids and husband. But there's a stark contrast between those two siblings. When we're broken, we can either turn to God or turn away from Him. But when we feel ourselves that we're heartbroken, when we feel ourselves disappointed, we can become angry. And we look for people to blame. We say, how can God let this happen? Have you ever been there? Are you there now? Because these are messy questions. These are human questions. After all, where is God when life falls short and it's not going how you thought it would go? You know, God could have kept this from happening, right? What hope is there? You hung in there with a spouse or another family member year after year. Now, now look at what that spouse or family member has done. Or you raise your child right. You love them. Now look at how that child is doing and even how that child treats you. You were honest. You're a hard worker. You thought as long as you did your job right, everything would turn out. But then you lost that job. When we're angry, when we're disappointed, when we're frustrated, it's our human tendency to say, God, it's your fault. God, it's your fault. Then we do something really dangerous. We take matters into our own hands. We withdraw from relationships. We do things we regret. We say things that we regret. We create more debt. We take more pain relievers. On and on it goes, and it just feels worse and worse. The pain doesn't leave us. And the story of David has a sad ending to it. His ending reminds us of something extraordinarily important. So if you've been daydreaming or, or off somewhere, come back. Because this is the takeaway. It's simply this. The foundation of faith is not answered prayer for our dreams. The foundation of faith is not everything going the way we planned. The foundation of faith is not happily, happily ever after endings. 
In fact, it's always a mistake, even though we tend to do this, to wrap our faith in God and connect it to the fulfillment of our dreams, our expectations. It's always a mistake to wrap our confidence in God around the fulfillment of our dreams. My dreams come true, therefore God is good. My dreams don't come true, therefore I don't think there's a God. Listen, dreams that don't come true and prayers that are not answered in the way you want says nothing about the goodness and presence of God. And if you base the goodness and the faithfulness and presence of God in life going as you expect, you will miss out on some of the most important times of your life. Because there's moments there in your brokenness when God wants to sit and weep with you in your disappointments. God meets us in our disappointment. God can be counted on to embrace us when reality bursts our dreams. God may not move how we expect. Life may not be what we expect. But if we run to him, he'll wait with us in our pain. He'll listen to us. He'll bring healing to our hearts in that sacred tent upon the rock. Will you wait for the Lord? Will you find strength in that sacred tent when your dreams die? When disappointments come, can I invite you to this one simple response? Let go of your expectations and hold tight to God. Give up your expectations and hold tight to your Creator. In your confusion and your desperate circumstances, can you make your way to a sacred tent and wait for Him there? Where is your sacred tent? For some of you, it might be through a program here at church like Grief Share. For others of you, your sacred tent might be found in your small group. Or maybe that's why you should join a small group. But I think for a lot of us this morning, our sacred tent is right here, right now, in this moment, in this place. Where God wants to meet you. And so we're going to have a little different ending here this morning. As we take communion, the praise team's going to lead us through a couple of songs. And we, we're not going to have people standing up here waiting to serve you the elements. It's an opportunity to come before God and to into your sacred tent. So at whatever point you feel led, come forward, take the, 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 the bread, take the juice, which represents Christ's body and blood, and go back to your seat. And you're going to take communion on your own. You're going to be there and have the opportunity to meet God in his sacred tent in your seat there as you take communion. There's also a couple other opportunities for you to, to meet God this morning. You'll notice that there are two half circles on either side of the room. We've got prayer partners there. So maybe you're saying, you're thinking, God, I, I need to go to your sacred tent. I'm in the midst of disappointment. I need somebody to pray for me. I'd encourage you to just make your way and let somebody pray with you. 
Or a third option might be just to simply come forward, come to the altar, come pray by yourself, meet the Lord here and say, God, I've messed up, or God, I don't understand this situation in life, but I need you. I'm broken. Let me give it to you. Fathers, we enter this time together. Would you meet us here? Would you please eat, meet each one of us? We all have different disappointments. I don't know what some people might be going through. They might be going through one of the deepest valleys of their life this morning. It might be caused by them or it might have been caused by something else. Would you meet them here? May we be open. May we seek you in your sacred tent upon that rock this morning in whichever way that you're leading us. In Jesus' name we pray.